Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm delighted to say that Paul and I are back as a twosome um, for our second and maybe our last ever deep dive back into those wonderful tapes that we unearthed and baked back in December. And uh, today we're going to look in, we hope, a lot of detail, but not quite as much detail as we did with, with Natural Wonder, at the three remaining songs that we haven't really talked about in much detail. They are, of course, You Didn't Like It Because You Didn't Think of It by Hot Legs, and two tracks from around 1980 time by 10cc, Survivor and Tomorrow's World Today. We're going to be listening closely to just a few of the multi-tracks from those tapes because I think they, they show us some really fascinating things about 10cc, what they did in the studio, how they did it. Um, and we might learn a few things that we never saw or heard before. So, Paul, um, looking forward to this again. Yeah, me too. This is a, an excellent episode for me because, I, as I understand it, you've you've kind of queued up lots of uh, sound goodies for me and all I have to do is listen and make the occasional... <laughs> half intelligent comments so yeah looking <laughs> and, forward to this I, I quite like these episodes as well Paul because with with any luck there won't be much editing to do because it's all been done <laughs> in advance yeah so it's really good um let's go back Paul to I think it was the 16th of December when we'd rented that Airbnb in Manchester in fact we'd we'd rented another place we turned up there with our camera kit phoned them up and said, you know, how can we get hold of the key? And they said, oh, we're not renting out this flat anymore. And I said, well, hang on, I've, I've paid for it. So we were homeless, uh, at least for about an hour, and we managed to get a last-minute alternative sorted out in North Manchester. Um, carted all our stuff in, including the oven, and met up with Peter Wadsworth there, who had these three tapes. Tell us, Paul, about our experience of, of baking and playing that first one. Um, it, it was quite exciting. Our eyes were on the prize, really, of the of the bigger two-inch multi-tracks. So this little quarter-inch, very unassuming little tape, which looked very modest in comparison, almost slipped under the radar, really, didn't it? Mm. Um, but um, we stuck it on uh, my parents' old Ferguson reel-to-reel, uh, which I know in your baking uh, laboratory has been superseded by a Revox machine now. But, oh, but though I have to say, Paul, sorry to to to, yeah. to uh, chip in. Your your old Ferguson machine is sitting right in front of me now because it's been very very useful in me restoring some of my granddad's old tapes and and some of the sort of slower um, smaller tapes that people like Henry Priestman have sent me. So, with your permission, I, I, I'd like to keep the Ferguson going for a bit longer, if that's all right. Oh yes, <laughs> please do. I'm I'm glad that it's it's operating in a, in a useful home as it were it's uh it, it yeah it's a lovely machine it's it's held up really well considering it was kept in not exactly a shed but <laughs> it was kept under not controlled conditions for you know 30 years or something and i and i dug it out and it worked perfectly so it's very gratifying that it that it's being used uh and that was you know a, a fantastic thing to to play on it on on december the 16th absolutely but we got some very kind of gravelly growly sounds out of it at first didn't we yes that's right even though the ferguson can play tapes at three speeds the fastest of which is seven and a half yeah. inches per second 
that's still only half as fast as the Hot Legs tape was recorded. Therefore, everything sounded very slow played back. I mean, we instantaneously knew that it was playing at the wrong speed, obviously. Yeah. You, don't, you didn't need to be an audiophile to, to, to get that one. Yes. Sounds a bit like Come Together. It does slow down. So the vocals are going to come in now, aren't they? You can't keep a good man down? Yeah. But I think we immediately recognised the, the opening riff yeah. um, as being uh, you didn't like it because you didn't think of it. And mm. um, Obviously, knowing it was Hot Legs had narrowed it down a bit but it jumped out immediately um, before we then digitally um, uh, increased the speed so that we could hear it correctly. Mm -hmm. But it was a, a very exciting moment, wasn't it? It was our, our first baking and playback experience. And even though we were just listening to this tape through the tiny speaker at the front of the Ferguson machine, there was something magical about it. Um, but talking of magic, Paul, I have to say that... Um, based on the Bake Off experience and a couple of people getting in touch with me, including Henry Priestman, asking me if, if I could repeat the process for them and, and restore some of their old uh, master tapes. I bit the bullet and, and advertised uh, for a professional quality machine. And as luck would have it, a, a good chum of, of both of ours, Alex McCambly up in Aberdeen, uh, had got one sort of sitting in mothballs up in his loft or in his garage or something covered in, in cellophane. And he said, well, I've got one, Sean. Um, and we, we agreed a price, which was, was very, very reasonable. And then we had the, the huge gargantuan task of, of getting it down from Aberdeen down to Ulster. And we had all sorts of toing and froing on Messenger talking about um, packaging and bubble wrap. And I bought a cardboard box that was seven times too big. And I tell you, <laughs> this thing weighs it's got to be 20 kilos it's absolutely wow, really? huge uh, and, it, and it sits on a on this kind of stainless steel stand as well so absolutely massive so um a friend of his packaged it up put it on a pallet and, and wrapped it in, in a million yards of of plastic and it came down on this enormous lorry um and it was extremely exciting uh, once it had sort of warmed up a little bit, acclimatised to the, the, the temperature of the house, I switched it on, very excited, and a um, big puff of smoke came out the back of it. So, oh, no. yeah, I had to take it to the doctor, um, and he, he just replaced a couple of, of minor components. And when I got it back, um, of course the first tape I, I put on there was, was the Hot Legs one. And honestly, Paul, for all the beauty of, of your mum and dad's Ferguson machine... Uh, what came out of the speakers was just electric and rather like the experience we have with Natural Wonder, it was like being in that in that strawberry studio in 1970. The clarity was just amazing. So this is exactly as I heard it once I'd, I put it on that brand new 1980 Revox machine. It comes to that doubling up part, off the key. All right, so you can all get it from me. quality and 
One of the things that struck me about it, Paul, was as how much clearer, sharper, and more hi-fi it sounds than the finished master of the track. Mm. Yeah, you can hear every nuance in there, can't you? Yeah. It's uh, and there's only so what now? What's happening there? Just drums and piano, right? At that point. Yes, that's right. Um, that's um, y- you're hearing. A two-track recording, and and I want to talk about that in a bit more detail because I can't get my head around the physical process that Hot Legs went through making these recordings. But I'll 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 shine a bit of light on that in a minute. What we're listening to is a two-track recording. When you play it on a, a proper tape recorder, effectively what happens is you, you get track one playing in the left-hand channel, and track two playing in the right. And what we've got in on track one is the initial backing track, which is basically piano and drums, which we assume is played by, by Kevin, of course, and, and Lowell. So they recorded that as a backing track. And then very clearly at the start of, of track two, you can hear Lowell's voice giving instructions for the backing vocals um, and I assume he's joined in there by by Kevin and, and Eric, but there's a, a lady in there as well who we think is helping out with hand claps. And when we've heard her voice, we'll, we'll tell you who we think it is. Comes that doubling up part off the key. All right, so you can all get it from me. Take one can off when I do the voices. So we'll listen to a little bit more of that uh, of that vocal overdub track, Paul, because there's some, some interesting things on there. Y- you can hear Lowell sort of explaining to who we think is Pauline Renshaw, um, mm. who was working at the studio at the time. She was involved right at the start when, when Peter Tattersall was shopping around for somewhere to set up the studio, and I think she was instrumental in finding it. We're hoping to be talking to Pauline soon, actually, which would be really exciting. Um, but uh, Lowell's explaining to her that she should have only one of one headphone on her ear at the, at the time so she can hear her natural voice in the room with the other ear. Um, but it's just, it's so lovely, isn't it, Paul, to be hearing that studio chatter on a 10cc thing. That must be, yes. that must be unique. There's not much studio chatter because as everyone knows they were such perfectionists um, and any outtakes uh, officially were binned basically by by the band <laughs> yes. somebody asked on the Steve Hoffman music group Sean where um, there's been a little bit of discussion a thread has been started about our our um, natural wonder film and recording and um, somebody asked why did they bin all their outtakes? Was it because they were worried of the uh, worried about them falling into the hands of bootleggers? And I answered, mm. no, I don't think so. It's just because they were such perfectionists. They just considered everything which wasn't up to scratch deleted, and they physically deleted it to get rid of it. Uh, and that and that means that there's very little works in progress that hitherto, at least, we've had access to. Um, so it's nice to hear them kind of mucking around and getting set up in the studio. It's nice to hear a female voice actually on the tape, apart from the very famous <laughs> exception that proves the rule, Karen, <laughs> Kathy Redfern's uh, world-famous "Big Boys Don't Cry." Yes, I don't think there's any evidence of 
of female voices or musicians in the 10 CC world, is there? So, so it's a bit of a boys' club. So it's yeah. nice to hear. It's nice to hear the support staff being involved. Absolutely, and and uh, as far as I can tell, Paul, she's doing a, a pretty good job on the clapping as well. Um, there's about <laughs> just for the intro of this song. Uh, there's about thirty seconds worth of very kind of staccato uh, riffs, punctuated with with this clapping. And it's 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 not a regular rhythm, is it? It's no, it's kind not. Of every, that... every second one has to be ten cc or hot legs as was. Not the ordinary, it has to be slightly out of the ordinary, <laughs> even the claps. Yes, exactly. It's like one here, there we are, two there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little gap there. Pretty good, no mistakes so far. <laughs> yeah, slightly off that one. Yeah. Yeah, so you get the idea. But um, what's almost more interesting here, Paul, apart from hearing um, the backing vocals coming up soon in their mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, here we go, frighteningly raw and clear mm. and upfront. How many people sing in there then, Sean? Look, look, uh... Kevin, Eric, and Lowell at that yeah, point. Yeah, um, it, it's hard to tell there because they're all singing the same note. But when they come in with that with that weird kind of discordant harmony shortly, the one that reminds me of the train whistle harmony vocals on Heroes and Villains. Woo, woo, woo. If you listen to this, there's enough... Definitely three parts. Mm-hmm. Can hear Eric very clearly. Yeah. Yeah, you, you simply wouldn't be able to get that discordant sound with, with two voices. So that's gotta be yeah. the three of them. And presumably Peter's in the in the control room uh, engineering. But it's, yeah, as he was from the outset. So there's probably the four of them doing hand claps, Pauline and the three guys. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's interesting bits that I can't tell whether they've been mixed out of the final master, Paul, or or they're actually there really, really quietly. We can listen to the finished master because I've got a few other things to say about it. But almost the most interesting thing about this track two is what's happening between the important bits of music. They kept mm-hmm. the tape running and uh, you hear them whispering, moving around, probably putting down cups of tea and lighting fags and things like this. It's really quite interesting. Can hear them practicing the vocals mm. too. <laughs> That's quite a common thing if you if you listen to isolated multi tracks, isn't it? Yes.
Yeah, interesting that those harmonies aren't the same twice round. And it might be because the first time round, somebody made a mistake and they didn't, that either they didn't spot it or um, they couldn't be bothered to go back and redo it. It, it, it's quite an instinctive sort of set of harmonies, isn't it? They haven't worked, they haven't sat down and worked it out too much. No, I they're, mean, they're we, singing, you know, in unison or just two part in places. So I, I don't we, think they'd really thought them through for very long. Well, let's zoom out a minute. I mean, this whole track is experimental, isn't it? Yes. Um, now, this was the B side of Neanderthal Man. Um, so, am I right in thinking, well, we, I think we know that it has to be recorded after Neanderthal Man because that was the very <laughs> first recording. So therefore, um, no, wait a minute, scratch that, scratch that. You're probably going to talk about this because this was recorded on two track, wasn't it? It was, and and, right, and there therein lies my my mystery, Paul. Really, yeah. So wonderful to hear those those vocals in isolation like that, even though they're not the certainly not the best harmonies that Ten CC ever recorded. <laughs> it's just it's wonderful to hear something that early, um, you know, recorded so clearly. Um, but I, I suppose the big treat on, on this tape, Paul, has got to be Kevin's drumming, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. It, it goes through so many phases. One of our correspondents on, was it a YouTube comment, which I thought was very illuminating, they said it sounds like car chase music, which hmm. then melts into the ballad and then they're, they're talking about the, the later part of the song which became Fresh Air for My Mama. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it was good. It's got this kind of, it's uh, kind of frantic, the opening section, isn't it? It is. I think dis describing it as car chase music was very apt. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation but I really love the, the, the later section, you know, the bit that was lifted for Fresh Air for My Mama. The drumming kind of reminds me of I'm Mandy Fly Me, the, what, some of the wonderful fills that Kevin does just before the the big solos. Um, he's a brilliant player of fills, isn't he? Yeah, we've mentioned this before. He's he. My theory is that he plays like a singer, so his fills are almost hooks. They're they're sort of simplified down to the essence of what needs to be one between one bit of a song and the next. Yes, it it, it, lo it lodges in the ear. Uh, in, it, I'm sure these fills are instinctive, but when he comes up with a great one, like I'm Mandy and Donna, I'm thinking off the top of my head, and these are other examples. They're, they're slightly different each time the, yes. the sequence rolls around, but they really do uh, hit home, don't they? They really do, and they're singable, just like, yeah. exactly as you've just said, and and uh, yeah, and wonderfully memorable because of that. Let's hear a little bit of of the of Kevin's drumming on that sort of ballad section. Just wonderful, really wonderful. And um, weirdly, Paul, it's only just struck me that there are four musicians playing on that track. But I, I was just thinking about that, but are they playing at the same time? I reckon there might be a cut because doesn't it go from bass, drums and guitar to bass, 
drums and piano. Yes. Don't know how they'd have managed the cut. So bass, drums and guitar there. Hang on. No. Drums, bass, piano and guitar. Where? There as well? Yes. Before it changes? Yes. Can I just hear it again? Yep. I don't hear any guitar on that on that final section. No, but there's but you're definitely right. that kind of offbeat guitar licks being played around the piano and bass parts. So that's interesting. So of course the question is, is Graham there? <laughs> uh, I don't believe he is. He was in New York, wasn't he? Yeah. So who's who's playing the the, the extra uh, no, instrument? On. Was he? He wasn't in New York. Well, well, that that leads us on to when exactly was this recorded? Yeah, because I, it, I've got some alarming theories about this, Paul. Okay, well, fire away. <laughs> if you don't mind, and sorry, I'm being indulgent, but um, I I dropped a line to Peter Wadsworth the other day because this was kind of beginning to do my head in. What our assumption was is that Neanderthal man recorded in 1970 and, and a hit sort of in the summer, I believe, um, was the first record that uh, they recorded on a brand new four-track machine, a Fostex thing. Uh, and Neanderthal Man was used as a kind of kind of a playground, wasn't it, for them to experiment with, with overdubbing. And that's how they ended up with Kevin pounding away on, on lots of overdub drum parts for that song. But Strangely, with this being the B-side of Neanderthal Man, you'd assume it was re recorded after. The thing is, though, Paul, why are we sitting here looking at a two-track master tape? It's not on four-track. Why is this a two-track tape? Well, I think your initial assumption is, why would you assume that a B-side had to be recorded after? I know you might think, oh, we've done an A-side, let's, mm. let's now record a B-side. But uh, isn't it just as likely that they had already been doing experimental recordings beforehand on the two-track, i.e. this one, yeah. and then they just dug it out of the archive and stuck it on the B-side? I think that's what we're looking at here. And this yeah. is what Peter um, said to me when I asked him about the, the sort of the comparative timelines of, of these things. And uh, he says that we, we don't have precise dates, unfortunately. The, the single Neanderthal Man was released in May 70. He thinks that you didn't like it would have been recorded when they realised they needed a B-side. So March, April 1970, he's saying. Um, but I'm, I'm beginning to question that. But anyway, here's the, the kind of detail about the, the machinery. And I'm sorry, folks, if we're kind of going down our usual <laughs> geeky technology they, rabbit they're hole. Used but they're used to it by now. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah, so thanks for sticking <laughs> with us. And Peter says, Strawberry was four-track in early 69. Their first proper desk was, was four-track. Now, the Castanets Cats booking in late 69 allowed the purchase of a new Ampex four-track machine, and it was this that they were testing out when Neanderthal Man was first recorded. And the success of Neanderthal Man allowed the desk to be upgraded to eight track. In early 69, it right. was already a four track studio. I didn't know that. Yeah, nor did I, nor did I. Okay. So 
my my question here would be because this tape's recorded on two track, presumably because there was no four track machine available. Yes, there aren't many instruments and parts to this tune, Paul. Um, they could have easily done it on a four track machine. But my suspicion is that they had two two track machines. Uh, the tape that we've got has got the initial backing track, track one. It's got the vocals and hand claps, track two. And then presumably what they then do is bounce those two tracks in mono onto one track of a second machine. Mm -hmm. um, so that you'd, you'd effectively have the drums, bass, guitar, and the vocals and hand claps all kind of burnt down onto the same track. And that would free up a track on the second machine for them to add other overdubs. And as we'll hear shortly from the finished article, there's at least one extra guitar part and we've got Kevin's lead vocal. And in places, Kevin's lead vocal is double tracked, um, which means that they probably would have had to bounce again from that second machine back onto the original machine and, and start the process again so that Kevin could add his second vocal. And this this really does feel like it was it was bounced between two two-track two machines, which makes this a 1968 track. Uh, you mean you're saying it's a 90, 1968 track because if it was any later, they'd automatically be using the four-track. Yes, and you can easily bounce on a four-track machine. So why why have the palaver of using two separate two-track machines? It just doesn't make sense unless the four-track was down. Maybe it was, you know with the doctor or something i just have a think about the the content of the music things move very quick in uh, in that time in musical history of course enormous music changed almost weekly if not monthly mm. uh, at least i don't think this feels like a 68 track yeah it feels a bit it feels later to me I know, and if we have a listen to the finished article, the first thing I notice about it is is that it sounds quite a bit duller than what we've had the, the joy of listening to. Right, because of the bouncing. I think um, because of the bouncing. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. because you've got two lots, I think two lots of degradation, and then, of course, it's then mastered onto another tape for the final version. But you'll hear, hear, you'll hear a, a very prominent extra guitar part, and we'll fast-forward... Um, to hear a little bit of Kevin's uh, double track vocal and then his main lead vocal. So I'm hearing two guitars playing yes. along with with the doubling with, the main. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's that. There's a kind of an offbeat one going. Beow, beow. And someone's playing a frantic woodblock as well. <laughs> yeah, and there's a shaker or something, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot of added elements all of a sudden. There are, there are. But those added elements could have been played live during a, a single take onto yeah. one track. Yeah. 
and there's the backing vocals we heard isolated before. But yeah, it's, it's nowhere near as clear, is it? It's it, so it, great to have the original. It really is. Um, so let, let's hear a bit of the double track vocal. It's the good, good man. It's, that sounds double track to me. Let's play it again. Now, certainly bands like Cream were putting stuff out like this in 67, Paul. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. It's, uh, I mean, I have nothing to go on to mm-hmm. say that it couldn't be produced. Um, it sounds, it just sounds later it to does. me. No, I, it does. It does. Let's have a little, a little bit uh, of a burst of Kevin's beautiful vocal on the fresh air bit. Yes. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah, so there's there's quite a lot going on, um, but it could well have, you know, the three or four of them could well have just been standing around in the same room at the same time mm. with their headphones on, just adding their individual bits. I'm beginning to wonder whether it is Graham playing bass because yeah. it's quite accomplished and dynamic bass playing. Obviously, both Eric uh, and Lowell being accomplished guitarists could play bass, but there's a difference between being able to play bass and being a bassist. Uh, of course, Graham was also very early on in his bass playing career. He only became a bassist, I'm using inverted commas, really when he when he started uh, in that position with 10CC. Yeah. But I don't know, those, those um, kind of double time runs in the little breaks, they do sound like him. They, they do. Sound like Somebody who's very, very confident on the instruments. Yeah, uh, and it's got Graham's style, hasn't it? Sort of muted, yeah. played with a yeah. pick, Paul McCartney-esque, you know, all, all the things that we've we've observed for months and months now. Um, it could well be, and, and it might be worth asking the question. Uh, yeah. I wonder if he could remember. Well, it's funny. He, um, I'm not sure whether he could. I mean, just inferring this from his reaction when he, he was delighted, as was Kevin, to hear this track, and obviously it was a thrill for us to be able to play it to them, but Graham's reaction was, uh, what jumped out at him clearly was, oh, well, there's the genesis of Fresh Air for my mama. Mm. Um, whether he did or didn't remember playing or not playing on it is a bit unclear, but, um, but it's prob- probable that they just can't remember, unless there's indefinite you know, audio evidence that you can say that is somebody playing. Um, mm. it's, we may never know, I suppose. Yeah, but there's definitely four people on that bit, which At is... At the same time, there has to be, yes, based on the, on what we know about the recording yeah. method. You're right. Yeah. Um, I've got an aside about this song, um, which I meant to mention to 
Kevin and or Graham, they may have been in, amused by it. But the, um, I had a book um, for a long time called All Together Now, which was one of the earliest reference books about the Beatles. Okay. It came out in the mid-70s, and one of the sections was Bootlegs by the Beatles. Many of the tracks originally ascribed to the Beatles on Bootlegs weren't by the Beatles. There's things like um, L.S. Bumblebee by, you know, oh, yes, Peter, yes, yes. Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. That's and right. Lots of other things that turned out not to be by the Fabs. And this song, You Didn't Like It Because You Didn't Think of It, did the rounds on as the Beatles on a Beatles bootleg. In yeah, the, in that the rings 70s. a bell. So because it's so Beatlesque, I suppose, and because the hot, hot legs were, you know, almost unknown and certainly the B-side was very obscure. Mm-hmm. I find that quite amusing that it, it sort of did the rounds and there's probably <laughs> some, you know, wizened old record collectors somewhere. They probably know by now because of the internet, of course they do, but for a while they thought they had a rare Beatles track. Oh, fantastic. Hand. It does have it. It's kind of like a hybrid of the White Album and Abbey Road, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, but, of course, we, we, we love it for its... Uh, for its later incarnation, I can't resist playing a bit of that. When you break away, take me away. It's just about time to hear the world say you gotta believe in something. It's easy to see. My God, it's fading away. So pick up your Bible and pray for me. It's amazing what a few years and, and four more tracks of tape can do to a sound. Fabulous. Yes. I, it might be my favourite vocal of Kevin's, you know that. It's up there, and I, I'm so glad we have that wonderful live performance mm. uh, from the concert uh, footage that the BBC filmed in 1974. It's a standout track. It really is, isn't it? I, I mean, on that, that performance is vocal, it's spellbinding but <laughs> so are lol and eric's vocals and graham's on yeah, the backing yeah. and graham's bass is up front and it's um it's it's a terrific recording i mean i know it has been officially released but that's a real jewel in the crown of, of the mark one 10cc live yeah yeah no i i agree it's it's my very favorite 10cc live track that and that that performance is my favorite of all of them yeah, find it on YouTube, folks, just, just in case you haven't. Have a look for Fresh yeah, Air. Yeah, 10CC at the BBC, 1974. So say one and so say all We had a lot to say and we said it second tape we played down at Cottonmouth Studios, Paul, uh, was, was the mystery one, wasn't it, with just 10cc written on it. It looked in a yeah. right old state. Um, the first sort of two or three yards of tape were really <laughs> mashed up and mangled. So I wasn't expecting anything from it. 
And if you remember, Rennie um, threaded it into the machine and, and uh, we pressed play and he set his computer to record everything. And do you remember the very first thing we heard? It wasn't music at all. Oh no, I can't. Was it was it like a high pitched testing yeah. tone? Okay, that's right. And we were worried that's all that was going to be on the tape. <laughs> yeah, for the we obviously thing. thought it was just going to be like a yeah. test tape. Just these these um, mostly high pitched um, whistly sounds yeah. uh, that went on for ages at different tones. They started like really high, and then they would go mm. lower and lower and lower in different octaves, and uh, it was really painful uh, to listen to. And then. I think we started to hear some music going backwards, didn't we? Oh yes, because we had the tape. It was actually running backwards, wasn't it? Yes. So we, what we were act, what we were actually hearing was the end of the the tape. Uh, the tones were at the yeah. end, presumably. Yeah. Yes, and then so uh, we flipped the tape over and started playing from the the start, and then we heard this played at half speed, but it was enough for us to to recognise it. <laughs> I think uh, Graham should copyright that sound. You know, uh, Natural Wonders kind of taken the limelight, of course, because it's a you know an unknown track. But the more I hear Survivor, well, the more I hear your mixes, and I know you've done two great mixes: an instrumental mix and a kind of a mix that builds up from Graham's lead vocal in isolation, and then gradually up adds other parts. And they, those two mixes showcase just how great a recording this is. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. It's, it's fabulous, isn't it? It really is. It's, and it's gone up so so hugely, Paul, in my estimation. I always did like Survivor. Yeah. And, and it was probably already up in my, my top five, top three maybe, of, of, their, of their post-70s work. But honestly, being able to work so closely with the multitracks on this one... It might even be at the top now of, of the 10cc marks, three, four, whatever. I think it's a magnificent piece of music. Um, there's lots going on and some really interesting techniques that are being used, some that are very similar to what we, we've encountered from 70s 10cc, but uh, in some cases very, very different. But before we leave Graham's guitar alone, Paul, I just wanted to highlight something that Paul and I absolutely love to death. And it comes after the intro um, when there's a, an extremely clean cut into Graham playing a completely different part. That's just unspeakably gorgeous, isn't it? It is. It's such a fabulous uh, sequence on the guitar. And I, I think I've said this to you already, Sean. I wonder maybe whether that was the germ from which the song grew, if you like, the seed. I wonder whether it started as that beautiful guitar run 
Yeah. That, of course, is the what underlies the, the verse. Yeah, the absolutely. I, I just love the way those really light, high-pitched arpeggios just kind of cascade up tri- and down. Up and up and up. Well, they go yeah. up and up and up. It's, it's, a, it's a fabulous guitar piece. It's, it, it's subliminally there in the finished track, but it's almost It's not buried. enough there, is it, in the finished it, track? Well, maybe it is, because if it wasn't there you'd miss it but mm. it's like a lot of great music has these parts that you can't really hear you can merely feel but nevertheless they contribute so much to the whole of the, the um the experience of of listening to the recording no, no so, so i don't point. know we could argue the toss over that but but anyway it's lovely to hear it brought to the front now isn't it it really is um and I, am i hearing four guitars bounced onto two tracks paul uh, there's a, there's an awful lot of finger finger twiddling going on. Have another listen. Or maybe he's just playing quite high up the fretboard, so he's able to play that really lovely high melody with his little finger or something. Mm, it's very dexterous. Be interested to hear from our listeners whether somebody who knows how to play guitar better than you and I do, mm. whether that is possible with one part. Uh, it's so rich, it's almost certainly at least doubled, but he may be just doubling the same thing. Yeah, there's maybe. definitely there's definitely two almost identical tracks played, uh, you know, panned left and right there. Yes, um, right, right. But it's, it's, it, there's almost too much going on with the, the picking and... Uh, what he's doing with his left hand, for it to be played, you know, by you know by one guitar. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting one. And uh, to think that two years ago, Paul, I didn't realise that Graham played much guitar on Ten CC stuff. <laughs> oh God, how wrong I was. This comes up time and time again that we've discovered a lot about uh, Graham's, you know, skill on the guitar. And a lot of people we've talked to who worked at Strawberry. I'm thinking of Mark Coburn because he went, you know, when he started work there as an engineer, he he thought Graham was a bass player, mm-hmm. and of course he he was. I don't think he worked on this session, but he was working on similar sessions um, during the recording of this album, Ten Out of Ten, where Graham essentially was working either on his own or with uh, Rick or Simon or Vic Emerson, etc., and Paul. Yeah in the north and Eric was working in his own, uh, on his own stuff at Strawberry South. So all the guitar duties, apart from some lead stuff, maybe from Rick was, were handled by, by Graham. Yeah. And he, he was amazed at how great a guitarist he was. Mm. So he was hearing, he was, he was watching and hearing it firsthand, of course. Yeah. No, here, here, um, some great stuff. And, and of course we have Graham's specialism arguably you know the acoustic guitar which which he plays on on the middle of the track we'll just have a brief burst of that and that's very skillfully dropped in as well uh, it's not on the same track though, is it? It is. This is all the same. The same two tracks. It's sort of okay. identical guitar parts, um, you know, recorded, sort of synchronized. So two separate performances by Graham. Wow! So it goes. So... Straight, it goes from that that iconic intro 
to the the lovely kind of feathery arpeggio one that we've just been talking about straight into the acoustic bit you cannot you you can't hear a scruffy join that is well really... thumbs, thumbs up there for i think it was keith bessie who was engineering yep. these sessions or was he working at south with uh eric i'm not sure whoever the engineer was um, oh maybe it was martin martin lawrence no no actually, yeah, yeah i think it was martin now it's very possible that our, our good friend Mark may have been the tape hop, so he he may well have been involved in in dropping in there. For anyone who doesn't realise that, um, if musicians want to insert a part or change instruments for a different section, they have to play precisely in time while the engineer hits the record button at exactly the right moment, so that it doesn't uh, create a, an ugly glitch. And so you've you've got Graham's musicianship there, perfectly syncing with with whoever was was engineering. So yeah, brilliant stuff. And talking of brilliant musicians, Paul, what about Simon Phillips? Here you go. I just wanted to fast forward to some of the wonderful fills he does on the end section. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Getting the ride symbol there. Absolutely. Off of the outro. Do you remember us marvelling about the sound of Karen Carpenter's toms, Paul, many, many moons ago? <laughs> yeah. Um, where she, she she tunes her toms to kind of concert pitch. And I think Simon Phillips does as well. And they, they're a wonderful sound. Oh, he does. Can I um, tell you a little bit about Simon Phillips? Yeah, let me just pause there. Just a little bit about Simon Phillips for those who don't know. And I mean, I didn't know a lot of this. I did a little bit of research on him. Say research, it's just fun watching YouTube videos. Um, there's a couple of lovely interviews with him. And he started professionally at something like the age of 12 or 13, working in his father's big band, mm. where he was the youngest musicians. And they had, you know, musicians going up to the age of 60. Uh, his father saw the promise in his son and kind of put him on the drum stool in this professional band and he really put him through his paces. And he played with his father for, for four or five years, I think. By the time he came out of that, he was ready to to be uh, what he became, which was one of the great session drummers working in London's mm. essentially recording studios from, from the mid-70s onward. Um, and yes, he also talked about tuning um, he he spends hours. Um, he, I mean, he went into a lot of detail about tuning all the, the drums so that they work in sympathy with all the each part of the drum kit has to work in sympathy with each other part. Mm. He is extremely skilled in the areas of mic placement and, and how to configure a drum kit so it almost crossed, crosses over into the engineer role yeah. so he's an absolute master about the overall sound 
of a drum kit, which is which, which we can hear there as well. Absolutely, and it's a lovely sound, isn't it? I love the the crunch of the snare, and there's there's a nice kind of boing about the bass drum as well. Very yeah. often in the seventies, particularly, um, a lot of engineers would just take the the oomph out of kick drums. Uh, in in heavy metal now, for example, in, in in all the kind of metal genres, they've they've reduced the the kick drum to this to basically just a click. Um, whereas I like them to have a real thump, uh, and th- and this one is is great. You can, if we go back to the start again, you can hear this sort of doo doo yeah. of the kick drum, and you can always you can also hear a little bit of um, dodgy hum from a you know I don't know a broken lead or something, which is very unusual for a ten cc track. Hear that right at the start? You can hear a bit, a bit of a fizz from a dodgy lead. Yeah. Hang on. Doom, doom, doom. Great, great sound. I love it. So, um, again, we hear wonderful quality recording going on here, where in most cases, the what needs to have effects added have already been been added. Um, there's one exception to that, which we'll come on to. But one thing I think, Paul, that sets this apart from the kind of recording techniques that we looked at with Natural Wonder, where Eric was pre-planning every single sound so that the, the sound would be EQ'd and compressed and have have or not have the required effects on, on it recorded direct onto tape. Um, and each track was was very meticulously planned. So you'd have... Eric would write backing vocals on a tape box and you knew that was just the backing vocals on that track. On on this one, Paul, we start getting into quite messy territory. Uh, and I'll explain what's going on here. These are that we're going to listen to tracks three and four now. Um, track three will be left and track four will be right. There's a lot going on on the same track. <laughs> So three harmonised guitars bounced into two. Yeah. Okay, which is odd. Um, But on the same track... Can we just hear the cutover? Yes, of course. So Vic playing there, of course. Um, And then later on in that track. Interesting, isn't it? You don't really hear that on the on the finished product. That's, that's a also, that's a polyphonic synth, I think. And that's also Vic Emerson yeah. playing that part. That's right. So so you've got you've got lead guitars and piano and synth all on the same tracks there. So um, they were packing things in wherever they could. Well, I mean, Graham's a different kind of producer to Eric, clearly, and obviously Graham producing this track. Uh, 
on his own, just, just to be clear, Eric was involved in this track, but only at the very end of the recording process. No doubt we'll come on to that in a minute. Yes. And, and, and I suppose during the recording process, Paul, they, they, they'd come up with ideas, wouldn't they? Um, where someone would say, oh, why don't I add a little synthy bit there? Yeah. And, and the engineer would say, well, we've, we've run out of tracks now, <laughs> um, so we, but we can stick it somewhere where there isn't any sound. Yeah, which, that's what they always, they always do, don't <laughs> yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it makes the fact that our tape box had nothing written on it even more ridiculous. Here's another one, which is really interesting. This is predominantly um, Graham's bass tracks, tracks five and six, but you've got, one bass sound on track five and another bass sound on, on, on track six. Very, very different sounding. But you've also got a very unusual instrument kind of peppered around those bass parts as well. <laughs> One of Vic's favourite sounds, you suspect. <laughs> yeah. That's a classic example of a sound. Sorry, which sounds a bit, bit ridiculous out of contact, uh, out of context. But in the track, it works nicely. It's lovely, it? isn't it? it? It kind of announces the start of or the restart of the main section, doesn't it? Sure. Um, and here's uh, here's Graham's first bass part, which has got the same kind of lovely chorus effect on it that we heard on his uh, on his previous electric guitar parts that we had to listen to. Um, clearly, the, the the chorus effect is really gorgeous. And the bass played very high there. Mm. And then uh, it changes completely for the different section where you've got a, a completely different bass sound altogether and that's on a different track. And this one's got a bit of slapback delay, slapback delay on it, I think. Got a lovely touch, hasn't it? It's so light, Graham's bass playing. That second one sounds more typically like him. Uh, do you think they could be different basses? Yes, I do. They sound completely different, don't they? Now, the reason I asked that, Sean, is uh, uh, Ronald Van Kluster, hope I'm pronouncing your name right, who's a regular correspondent uh, to us. Yes, and uh, he's, he been on, he's been on YouTube as well, talking about the Bake Off tapes. Yeah, and he asks on YouTube, I think, is Graham using his white Fender Jazz? Um, I, I don't know much about different types of basses. I know Graham uses a Rickenbacker and a Music Man, and here's a third type that he probably uses, but maybe... Maybe there's two different actual bass guitars being mm. used across those two different sections. I suspect there, I suspect there were, I suspect there were. Here's another interesting one, Paul. Tracks eleven and twelve, backing vocals uh, on the same track as as the guitar solo in the middle. Right. Be Thank <laughs> you. 
Can we hear that again, Sean? I think I can hear some drop-ins. I think I can hear some... There are some glitches, aren't there, going on? Well, I don't know whether they're glitches. I think he was just playing until he found some lovely lines mm. that he wanted to keep. Just have another listen to... Right early on in that section, sounds like there's two drops. OK. <laughs> very noisy effects unit as well i love this section right because just again to put it in context if you're hearing this disembodied guitar <laughs> bit it's it's behind the the kind of fast staccato section of the song uh what are the words listen i know what she's like she's just a yeah. dream let's listen bit. to the backing track of, of that bit yes we've got the uh, the lindrum machine to set the tempo sections go into each other so beautifully don't they yeah now i i reckon this bit here uh it, he's i reckon he spent a lot of time it's very clever because he's found a kind of counter melody on that guitar or counter melodies mm. they're lovely in their own right but they don't detract too much from the vocal mm. and they can't so he's managed to find some great lines which just they just move enough differently from the vocal to make it to make the whole section really sing but they don't detract and at the end of that section if you listen closely uh it becomes more measured and regular he comes up with a more mm. regular pattern descending which kind of dovetails back to the end of the vocal i okay. think okay i can see him spending a long time i can see him spending a long time working out some lovely bits but essentially which which ended up on the track oh that, that's a really lovely observation paul let's have a listen Yeah, I see exactly what you mean. I mean, I know I'm going on about this part, but it's, I really like what's happening here. And also, because the whole section is repeated twice, this wouldn't work if you had those extra guitars the first time round because you mm -hmm. need to establish the melody. But you repeat it immediately afterwards, then you've got space. The ear is accustomed to what's happening and it's ready to accept some new pieces of information. So it's fantastic arranging. Yeah, it really, really is. And um, one thing that's surprising about the end section, which is so, we, we've laughingly said it's a bit proggy, uh, which I guess it is. 
you kind of assume that it's the kitchen sink that's been thrown at that end section. But actually, there aren't many instruments on it. You've got Simon's full kit, of course, uh, and you've got, um, you've got Vic's sort of choral synth, uh, and you've got the bass, but, uh, and, and you've got Eric's wonderful electric guitar solo, but you've only got Graham playing a, an acoustic guitar. So there's actually only like a live band's worth of, of recorded parts on that end section, Paul. And mm -hmm. yet it feels extremely full, doesn't it? It does. It, it, well, it's just, I guess the playing is economical, but so brilliant. It, it doesn't, it just draws you into the song, which is exactly what it should be doing. And, and Eric's solo, even though it was added, presumably when the rest of the track was almost finished, really does elevate it on it, the outro. It really it? does. So here we go. Here's, a, here's a, a, another sort of alt mix of that end section. You see what I mean? It's it, there's not actually that many instruments going on, but but it's right. a wonderful sound. But you know what's happening there? The uh, they're all hitting those anticipated beats, aren't they? Mm -hmm. All the whole band, da, 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 bam, bam. and it kind of makes it well up just before you move on to the next section as it kind of rotates. Definitely, around. there's definitely uh, a kind of genesis element, isn't it? Oh, it's 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 wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah, brilliant. And I've got one final thing to say about, about Survivor. This is the start of my self-indulgent mix. Um, okay. And I, I decided to focus on what I think is, is Graham's best ever vocal. I, I can't shake that thought. Let's have a listen. This boy, he's a midnight driver, high roller and a soul survivor. She tried to send him on his way. He say, hey, I want to stay. If you don't mind, I'm hanging around. I think it's in such a great key for him. He sounds comfortable. It's high enough for him to, to, be, to have, be forced to push it a tiny bit. But mm -hmm. I was listening to Live and Let Live the other day and listening to his, his poor old tired voice trying to crank out a Marriage Bureau Rendezvous, which is written at, at least half an octave too high for him, it would seem. Uh, and yet here on Survivor, Paul, he really seems to be in the, in the pocket. Well, number one, he's in the studio, of course, and he's relaxed and he hasn't just been playing live for a couple of hours. But yes. Yeah, it is, it is a lovely vocal. Do you remember his comment when we played it? To him, he. I think he was pleased to hear it because it clearly is a great vocal. But he also noted, I think he said, "There's no auto tune," <laughs> and that's true because it's it's not accurate, absolutely in some places. But it, it's just it carries the feeling, and that's more important. It does. I think it's a lovely, it's a lovely warm vocal. There is a little bit of a drop in, Paul. I don't know if you if you. No, let's uh, hear it. About yeah. halfway through the verse. She tried to send him on his way. He say, hey, I want to stay. Yeah. After the first, hey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you can just but, hear the breath. Hey, we're, breath. We're all allowed to do that. What I did with, with, with my mixes, Paul, wasn't to kind of 
compare it to the release mixes. I just kind of let the the tracks mix themselves, really, because that's mm. one of the wonderful wonderful things about the Strawberry Engineering is that the tracks do mix themselves. You don't really have to add any effects to anything. Um, you just kind of set the drums at a certain level and then they stay the same the whole way through because everything's just so pre-planned and, and compressed in a way that makes it really, really mixable. But when we listen to the final release version, have a listen to the sound of Graham's voice. Um, I deliberately chose to have it totally dry with zero effects on. Um, the production of the final track is very, very different to that. Let's have a listen. This boy, he's a midnight driver, high roller and a soul survivor. She tried to send him on his way. He said, hey, I want to stay. Beautiful reverb. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting listening to that. It sort of makes it sound more relaxed and it makes it sink back into the track to me. I don't know whether that was the intended. Yeah, it, it and it does. But to me, it, it creates a distance. Um, right, almost right, as if yeah. Graham is kind of melting into the background. Um, yeah. And some, certainly on the, some of the later sections, the busier sections, his voice is kind of lost in a wash of lovely sound rather than kind of being really prominent. For me, a wasted opportunity not to bring Graham's vocal really up front because I think it's a great vocal. Take me where I wanna go running, where the sea rushes up to the shore. It's a lonely place, but I need the space. Wanna let my feelings soar. It is. I love that you just. We just heard a little bit of the very um, expert self harmony there in the in the middle section. Mm. Uh, which is also very nice. Um, I know we don't want to talk about chords today because we're guilty <laughs> of doing that too much, but I just do want to feature the the chord sequence of the, that middle part. Um, and I think we mentioned this on the, on the podcast. Um, it's very reminiscent of Paul McCartney's Tomorrow. I think we mentioned this yeah. previously and, and the melody. Um, it's one of those things. I've, I've perhaps underrated this track because depending on if you hear two things alike, the one you hear first is always going to influence the second. And I, I do hear a, a resemblance um, there between the middle section of Survivor and Tomorrow by McCartney. But um, I'm with you. So I'm perhaps underrated the track as a whole because of that. Paul, you were going to say something extra, weren't you, about that lovely choral sound? Yeah, that's another signature sound for the track. I wondered where that was coming from. It sounds like voice loops again. I don't know. 
your instinct is is to think, ah, yes, that that's the old "I'm not in love" trick again. But it's not. It's a it's a synth played by Vic Emerson. Um, we know that he's got his polis, he's got his polyphonic synth to hand because we hear a little bit of it, don't we, on one of those earlier tracks. Um, but this is this is definitely a choir sound off off the synth. But I think where it is in the mix gives it that flavour of "I'm not in love." Ah, so it's off the shelf. It's not. Yeah. Uh, Graham and others overdubbed. Or no, it's definitely looped. it's definitely electronic. Um, yeah. Let's hear a bit of it in a sec. Before we run out of time, Paul, if it's possible to run out of time on a podcast, um, <laughs> let's let's have a look at uh, the second track on that that quote 10 cc tape we kept the tape playing and along comes the very recognizable guitar riffs of tomorrow's world today Never one of my favourite uh, tracks, Paul, and, and criminal that they would um, they would chuck Survivor out and stick this one in for the American release. But hey, yeah, no. that's that's odd, isn't it? It um, is a strange choice. But this wasn't one of the tracks co- uh, produced by Andrew Gold, was it? It was a track that was produced in the pretty much the same session as Survivor, put on the shelf, and then somehow it sort of crept in along with those other Andrew Gold produced tracks for the American okay. version. Do we know yeah. it was do we know it was recorded in 1980 at the same time as Survivor? Well, we know it wasn't produced by Andrew Gold, so it wasn't one of the re-recorded tracks. Mm-hmm. And it was recorded at Strawberry North and it had basically the same personnel as Survivor and it's on the same reel of tape. I think that's mm. enough circumstantial evidence to say, yes, it was the original batch of songs. Okay. Except that this has a very, very pared down sort of Deceptive Ben style personnel, doesn't it, Paul? Because according to the credits that I have, uh, we only have Graham, Simon Phillips and and Vic Emerson, it, don't we? Yeah, but that's basically the same set of musicians that played on Survivor. If you take out Eric's... Eric, yeah later overdubbed solo and Keith Bessie who played Maracas it's the same trio no you're absolutely right so we've got uh, you know the very recognisable sound of Simon Phillips here yeah and uh, and uh, Vic doing some uh, some very very weird and wonderful stuff some fantastic piano playing yeah. and perhaps some ill-advised uh, brass stabs played on his synth <laughs> I don't think this is nice. Let's wait till you hear the bra the, the really bassy synth coming here. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's Subgrange Hill, isn't it? Well, yeah, but it. Well, it was the eighties, just. Yes. Yeah, it has got very eighties feel to it. We've got a synth, so we're going to use it. Yeah, uh, yeah thanks, Vic. Thanks. Um, yeah, it kind of works in the context of the track, but this song might have been lifted with a, a proper horn section. I don't know, but for me, the the really interesting thing about this record is that if we believe the credits, Paul. It seems that Graham played every single one of the guitar parts, and there's an awful lot of them. Here's okay. here's a mix of of everything that Graham does, all piled in together. We get that Lind drum machine yet again. enjoying himself here playing all playing all the guitars yeah absolutely listen to this this is if it is graham and and we've got no reason to doubt it but this is him shredding at the end okay <laughs> <laughs> and that just really tickled me because that's not what you hear from graham normally well i mean again think of the context of these tracks recorded uh, late in 1980, as far as we know, when 10CC were kind of uh, in abeyance almost, weren't they? Yeah. Neither Eric nor Graham were sure whether the band was going to carry on. So he was kind of forging ahead and creating a, an identity for himself, perhaps. Maybe he mm. was thinking at, at the time this stuff could have gone on a, a solo album. He had these songs, and Don't Ask, and Lying Here With You, and lots of other material that he presumably could have used so maybe it was unclear so it was it had a kind of different focus this this work didn't it i agree and it's it's almost like a the shape of things to come isn't it of a, the yeah. sort of the mirror mirror modus operandi where mm. the, the two just aren't getting on and uh, they're living two separate lives at two ends of, of england i think this is an, a, a good song i mean it sounds yeah i don't know something about the overall sound um because it's a kind of uh, a take on a, a blues song, isn't it, really? And yes. It almost doesn't sound like 10ZC. Well, maybe that was the whole point if he was trying to forge a new identity, I suppose. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a good vocal again, isn't it? It is. I think it's a great vocal. And it's a, a catchy little ditty. I, I sort of like the idea of the lyrics, but there's a strange juxtaposition about sort of futuristic lyrics with a very kind of dated musical genre uh, it, it, the two don't fit for me but I, I made um, a revelation again Paul it's very very minor uh, but it's interesting <laughs> for me um, I really struggled to get anything that sounded decent when I was mixing this and I, I still haven't managed it because I'm refusing to change any of the sounds I'm not EQing anything I'm not adding in bass or treble or anything um, 
And yet it really sounds tinny. Here's my mix of everything together. And mm-hmm. I think I think this sounds really weedy and shrill. Now the children of the future may take a trip to Mars But might meet the space invaders on their way Cause we ain't seen nothing yet No, we ain't seen nothing yet Yeah, and yeah, I went back to the original album mix a couple of days ago and played that expecting to hear the same thing and I got this instead this is um, from the 1982 US version bags of punch yeah the the, uh, bass drum and the bass guitar really yeah Heavy there. Really, really um, up front. Now, that's partly the way it was mixed, but partly, Paul, because I think they fixed this one in the mix. You mean they added more elements? No, or, or I, I, I think yeah. they, they worked very, very hard um, okay. to, to stop the instrument sounding thin and kind of shrill and weedy Okay. and, and added uh, a lot of EQ in the bottom end to make it sound really kind of much more like it's got more bollocks. Uh, and right. they did a great job because this one, for me, of all the tapes that we've heard, um, that four songs that we've got the multitracks for, um, this one was, I think, the weakest recording. Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like they'd done any of the EQ or compression work before the tracks were laid down to tape. I think they, they'd switch to a more modern working method, which is to kind of record things flat at source and then um, plumb it up in, in the mix. So it's a very, it was a very, very different mixing operation. Um, and my, my desire to kind of just leave things as they were just doesn't work for this one. Um, I'd need to get mm. my hands really dirty to make it sound good. Maybe it wasn't recorded at the same time and with different... Different engineer, possibly. It may well have done. I mean, I'm, I'm as ever probably reading too much into this, but it just it feels like a knockoff. Um, yeah, maybe that's what it was, and and it's it it could well have been recorded in a rush. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of little treats in there, you know, for geeks like me. There's the the, the hand claps that have got the uh, the recognisable strawberry reverb on them. <laughs> yeah, they're really '80s hand claps as opposed to the the hot legs hand claps that we heard earlier, which yeah. Are, well, it might even be sixties. Yeah, or the I wonder very if that, Yes, I agree. Or, or it could be somebody banging a, a a dustbin lid or something. Yeah, it doesn't sound like lots of people clapping their hands together, does no, it? No, no. But an interesting sound, um, and not not much of interest in in that one for me, uh, particularly apart from seeing Graham in it, laid bare as a, a an incredibly proficient guitarist. But what a wonderful opportunity to have all four songs, <laughs> including Natural Wonder, of course, that we've, we've talked about a lot previously. Yeah. Uh, such a treat to actually 
uh, be able to uh, restore and play and share with our listeners these these great artifacts, isn't it? It's, well, it's such a treat for us, and and I hope that any of you listening are, are getting any anything like the pleasure we we have uh, being able to, to peek beneath the surface at these these constructions. You know, I I, I really do feel like an archaeologist at the moment, Paul, brushing away at the earth and, and literally unearthing the, these tiny fragments of bone. And here we, we, we have those bones in, in technicolour uh, <laughs> right in front of our face, and it's, it's such a treat. Now... That's us with our baking finished for a little bit. Um, I say a little bit. I thought we were just going to go off into the bakeless wilderness, but is it is now the right time, Paul, to say that Peter Wadsworth has stumbled across a couple of boxworths of, of, of tape? I think it probably is as good a time as any, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he sent us some intriguing photos of two cardboard boxes with quarter-inch tapes kind of thrown in almost higgledy-piggledy with some very, very intriguing titles, folks. I don't think there's any multi-tracks, so we won't be able to kind of take these these things apart. But honestly, some of the master tapes that we hope to soon get our hands on will be an amazing privilege. They're quite an exciting prospect, aren't they, Paul? They are, just sort of seeing these tapes thrown in a box. Um, and, uh, of course, COVID permitting, we'll be able to get our hands on them soon and uh, do some more baking and, and listen to the results. And mm. we will share all of what we find with you folks. Yeah, um, I can't wait. Thanks for listening, folks. And we'll, we'll uh, see you really, really soon. We've got a very special interview coming up in the next podcast, um, which we can't wait to share. See ya. Bye-bye, folks. Listening to the Consequences podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening.